Uh, I told you last week that we were going to, these two weeks that I'm here, uh, we're going to consider two crucial uh, components of what it means to be the bride of Christ, what it means to be the church. And last week we considered the church uh, as a witness, uh, a witness to the gospel that Jesus didn't save us uh, from hell to get us into heaven. Uh, if that was the primary purpose of salvation, uh, we would have uh, been raptured the moment we got saved uh, and just entered into that eternal life that is promised to us in Scripture. But no, uh, the logic of election is actually played out in the church. Uh, we often think of election in terms of who's in and who's out. God chose some and didn't choose others. Uh, that's a faulty biblical grid for election has not to, it doesn't have to do with who's in and who's out. It has to do with God's calling and purpose. God chooses you that through you he may save all. In other words, every time you see election appear in the scriptures, what you see is that God is working through the elect to actually bring his gospel to the world. He chooses Israel that they may be a nation of priests to the world. He chooses Jesus says, I have chosen you, the 12. You did not choose me. And what does he do in the Great Commission? He immediately sends them out that they might be witnesses to him, to the world. And so we need to understand that the way that Jesus calls us to witness is not by ourselves. Even when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out what? Two by two. When two or more gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I think that we forget that the church uh, is the primary means by which God makes himself known to the world. And there's been this unfortunate false dichotomy that's been set up in our current cultures, specifically in the West, uh, that has turned church into something that's optional in the Christian life. And I meet, especially in, in places like Portland, where the progressive cities, uh, you find this this false idea that's being uh, put out there as, as a viable option for the Christian life. And that is, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Uh, and that is a slap in the face of God's design. And it's actually a slap in the face of Jesus himself. Or the reason that they say such a foolish thing is because they actually do not know the scripture and what the scripture has to say about the church. For the scripture says this, and he, Colossians 1.18, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church is not an institution. It is a person. The church is Jesus Christ who is revealed to the world through our common life together around him. That's the very words common life is uh, the Greek word koinonia. It's our fellowship. We make Jesus known when we come together. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples in John chapter 13 by what? Not your love for the world. Evangelism actually begins within the community of faith by your love for one another. What the world needs to see is something different, something tangible. We want, I want you to think of yourselves the church is not the kingdom of God, but the church is an outpost of the kingdom. We're like an embassy of the kingdom. We're to make known to the world what the kingdom is going to be like when it comes in full. And so you can't say you're a part of the universal church uh, unless you're first a part of the local church, for the local church is what actually gives you the right to say you're a part of the universal church. And so what I want us to consider today in, in fullness is the idea of what it means to be a member. 
and what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Now, we have problems with the concept of member because we think in terms of membership, and usually it's membership to an institution or membership to an organization, like a Costco membership card. And as great as that is and all the privileges that come with it, although I do not personally have a Costco card, and I know it's amazing to be able to buy little large boxes of chicken, uh, and all those benefits, the, just the incredible, uh, the plethora of advantages for being a member of Costco. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about membership. In fact, the word member in Scripture is far more biological than it is institutional. The metaphor that, that is used throughout the, throughout the New Testament is that we are members of his body. And so when we actually isolate ourselves, when we separate ourselves from the church, what we are doing is dismembering the body of Christ. And that's an ugly word, but that's exactly what we're doing. Jesus chooses to make himself known through his church. We have a responsibility as a community of faith. Our dedication to him is played out in our dedication to one another. And so I want to spend our time today uh, in Romans chapter 12, and we're really just going to look at verses uh, 1 uh, through 8. And I'm going to just open up with 1 and 2 to, to set it up. Remember, Paul, in his profound letter uh, to the Romans, probably the most profound piece of writing in human history, uh, the book of Romans. In the first eight chapters, people get bogged down by the, by the depths of its theology. I mean, it's a book that you can spend a lifetime exploring. I've taught through it four times, and I feel like every time I teach it, I'm just now starting to understand it, but I really don't understand it. But I understand it enough to allow it to continue to transform my life and recenter my existence upon the gospel. And Paul takes the first eight chapters to explain the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Powerful statement. And then he spends eight chapters exploring all the facets of what it means to be saved by grace. And then moving into 9 through 11, he deals with the national question around, around Israel and the people, uh, God's chosen people, uh, and Paul wraps that into the gospel, and then he moves in from 12 to the close of the book into from extremely deep theology, extremely complex national questions, he then moves into very, very practical living. Based upon this understanding of the gospel, how then shall we live? And he says, this is how we shall live. And in beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, or I appeal to you, or literally, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your, literally your logical service. The Greek word logikos. It is, this is the most, this is the only right outcome of a right understanding of the gospel is that you now are no longer your own, but you belong to another. Jesus isn't just your savior, he's your Lord. And you have a daily responsibility to present yourselves, each one of you present yourselves to Jesus as a living sacrifice, which means thy will, thy will come, means my will go. That's essentially what he's saying. So he's showing you the difference between sin and salvation is that sin says my will be done. Sin is 
our rebellion against God's sovereign rule. Salvation is our surrender to God's love and grace, which is a surrender of our will to his will. It means that we recognize the worst enemy, the worst tyrant we will ever face is ourselves, and we give up our autonomy, and we accept Jesus as our Savior, which means he is, by default, our Lord. And not just our Lord, but he is the Lord of all. There will be a day when every knee will bow. But right now, as the church... This is where it is played out, is that Paul doesn't just end here with this individualistic statement that each one of you have a responsibility to daily surrender yourself to the authority and lordship of Jesus, but he says, this is how the lordship is played out. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Notice this. This is really important. This is going to play into what it means to be the church and what it means to be members of the body of Christ is that we have to have a reshaping, a reorientation of how we view the world in which God has placed us. Listen, the world that we live in today is an oppressive place. There are spiritual strongholds everywhere we go. I just came from a week in, in Los Angeles. I thought Portland was oppressive and it is. But L.A. is oppressive in a, whole, in a different way because there are spiritual forces at play. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities of darkness and the rulers of this age. And listen, the demonic, the, the sinful reality of human nature and flesh, the brokenness of, of civilization, the demise of a civilization that we live in, the demise of an empire that is clearly played, played itself out. Called the, listen, America is not coming back to God. The Bible's really clear that the days will get darker and darker and darker, which means that the church should shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Our loyalty is not to our nation. Our loyalty, first and foremost, is to our Jesus Christ, who's our Savior and King. It's a horrible thing when we politicize our faith. Jesus was very apolitical. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus is not here to take sides, he's here to save souls. And he does it through the church. And this is why we need to actually look at culture through the lens of scripture, which is the renewal of the mind, rather than looking at the scriptures and what it means to be a Christian through the lens of culture, which is what we tend to do. And it's what creates problems, it's what creates disconnect, and it's what creates misunderstanding around what it means to be the church. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't it funny that we're so obsessed with what God's will is for us personally? What is God's will for, what's his plan for me? Well, Paul doesn't answer that question, in fact, he, he does something better. He defines it and he fills it out by showing us that it has nothing to do with what we do by ourselves, but understanding the will of God is actually played out in what follows, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time now, which is in the context of community. And so he doesn't say, and this is how you should discover God's personal will for your life and treating the Bible, like I said last week, like a magic eight ball. Or thinking that Jesus is here to give you. Haven't you ever heard that? God has a perfect plan for your life. He has a perfect plan. Saying that is the equivalent of what our society, specifically Western culture, has been telling us for the last baby boomers, Gen Xers, into millennials. We've all heard it the same. You can do what? You can be 
anything you want to be. God has a perfect plan for your life. You give your life to Jesus, you're for sure going to get everything you ever wanted, never dreamed of. How many of you, if you're my age or older, you're 40 or I'm 44, so you're in your, let's say 40 and older. How many of you have gotten everything you ever dreamed and hoped for in your life? What is this guy? Oh, just the, look at that. The the one cheesy guy points at his wife. (laughs) That's good. You get points for that. That's good. Okay, he wins. That guy wins. The guy in the orange shirt wins. (laughs) My point is this is that anyone who's lived any length of time understands that life is filled with as much brokenness. In fact, much of our lives are defined more by our suffering than it is by our successes. And we need to understand that God never promises that he has a perfect plan for our life. He has a perfect plan, and we have the ability to be a part of it. Jeremiah's plan stunk. He never saw a single piece of fruit in his entire ministry. We're benefiting from it. His life was hard. He was, called, he was the biggest crybaby in the scriptures. And I think we need to understand this, that life is not about what's going to make me happy. We need to break free from the existential crisis that plagues not only our culture, but it plagues the church. And we need to come back to a right orientation around what it means to be followers of Jesus. And this is why Paul says, here's how you understand what the will of God is, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. For I say, through the grace given to me, you want to know what God's will is for your life? This is his will. Surrender yourself and to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Gosh, is that really the follow-up verse? But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. To understand what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, we have to see our need for humility. And this is a call to humility. Paul just laid it out. He says, listen, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. That is that you're gonna, you are presenting yourself um, to Jesus as king and Lord of everything that you do, that your logical worship is simply him being the center, the priority of your existence. And you need to reshape the way that you think around his personhood. And when we do that, then we can begin to actually live out what it means to live the victorious Christian life. And it is never lived out in a vacuum, but it is actually lived out in the context of community. And this is why he says, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so to understand this is to to actually begin to move toward a right understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ. It begins with functioning selflessly. Our culture says you are the center of existence. Solipsism, it's a philosophical concept that means the only thing that's actually real is me. David Foster Wallace in his brilliant uh, book of essays called Consider the Lobster said that solipsism is the fear of dying having only loved oneself. It's what has created what he calls a, a, a peculiar American loneliness that plagues our society in the age in which we live. Portland is a city that is extremely educated. Uh, it, is, it has all the pleasures that our society can offer, and yet we have the highest rate of depression in the entire nation, one of the highest suicide rates as well. More prescription drugs to balance people's broken egos and minds, 
is played out every day in my city, and I see its effects, and it's, it's driven right here. There's a spiritual component and a spiritual stronghold that dr- derives itself from what we've seen culturally arise since World War II, which is the rise of individualization to a sickening proportion. And what we need to understand is that functioning selflessly means that I am not the priority in my life. And think about it. Every city has its own strongholds. Every place has its You know what Southern California's stronghold is? It's a unique spirit. Ours is, ours is kind of a spiritual carnality where, we, where people refuse to grow up. It's like we have more strip clubs than Las Vegas. Uh, we have a huge sex trafficking problem. We have a massive, massive ep- epidemic with heroin uh, but look, at, it's happening everywhere. And Southern California is unique. I lived here for a couple of years, and the, thing, the oppressiveness that I feel in this culture is, a, is a, a press, I think, a spiritual stronghold of, of materialism. Uh, and I think, I mean, I just remember when I lived here. Remember before, before the crash, I remember the billboards everywhere in this area, Temecula. Is six bedrooms enough for you? You're like, I, I think so. I'm, I, don't, I didn't know this whole place was filled with Catholics and Mormons, but... You know, but like what? It, and this wasn't for communes. It's like is six bedrooms enough for your four-person family, and all the toys, and all the giant trucks, and the extra suspensions. And some of you're like, "Hey, man, this is getting personal." <laughs> but think about it. What was one of the areas that was hit the hardest? The hardest in the recession of 2007. There were more foreclosures in this place than anywhere else in the U.S. I think the exceptions were Las Vegas, this inland empire, Arizona, and Florida were the worst hit places. In the, Portland didn't experience that. We didn't have really any recession in regards to the housing. But there was like something, what was it, like 60% of new houses in Marietta were under foreclosure. This shows that there is a worship of the physical, of what can be experienced with the senses and the touches. And this is the reality. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. How do you battle that in a culture that worships the exterior? How do you battle that as a church? It's about functioning selflessly. It's about recognizing that the thing that's going to make you happy is not keeping yourself on the throne of your heart. In fact, it'll be the thing that demoralizes, dehumanizes your existence. I was thinking about my own existence as, as a follower of Jesus and thinking about all the dreams that I had when I was a kid. Listen, I was the most self-centered person I knew. When I was in grade school, my dream was to be a zoologist and study marsupials in Australia. Weird, I know, whatever. Everybody has their thing. <laughs> but did that happen? No. Then high school, I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I ended up being impatient, and I, I sold pharmaceuticals in another way, and that didn't work out for me either. And then by the time I was in my 20s, I moved on to, I'm going to be the biggest rock star in the world, and everything was about what was going to satisfy this, this aching desire to be somebody. But the thing is, is that I was constantly trying to define myself by my uniqueness from others, not recognizing that the way to be human is actually by discovering who we are meant to be in the context of community with others. But that can't happen until Jesus sets right what's already broken fundamentally in our hearts. The, the, the fundamental outcome of sin is a, is a disconnect, a destruction of our ability to relate. And so here he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. You know what thinking soberly means? Once again, he's drawing back. It's funny how much we're told to think right in Scripture. But you see, we live in an age of spectacle where we've lost our ability to think well at all, to think critically, to think clearly, to think through the person of Jesus. But we have the mind of Christ, Scripture declares. This is an important thing for us to understand because here he says to think soberly. We have to release our visions of grandeur. An exaggerated estimation about oneself always leads to discontentment and it, and, it, and it ends in a lack of usability. Now think about the age in which we live. Think about how many of you derive so much pleasure from things like Instagram. What is Instagram? Think about what Instagram is or a thing like Facebook. And listen, I'm not here to to challenge whether you should use those things or not. My wife, my daughter has the coolest Instagram account in the world. She's 11. It's called I Barf Magic, if you want to get a good laugh. I mean, just the name alone is worthy of following. I Barf Magic, that's so stinking clever. And Portland. (laughs) But I I think that one of the problems, I deal with this. I'll have young women come to me for counsel because they're super hurt by other women in community because they follow them on Facebook and they saw a party that they weren't invited to. Or the jealousies, because on Facebook and Instagram, we're able to present the best part of ourselves. Nobody spends their time taking selfies of themselves right when they wake up. I mean, it's, you think about what this has done to our existence to live out this verse as a community of faith is really challenging. We use the idea, the word community now has to do more, or the word social has more to do with social connectivity that's defined by Silicon Valley. A place, if I might add, if you've ever seen the TV show Silicon Valley, that basically portrays that the smartest people in the world that are defining how we communicate as individuals are also the most socially dysfunctional human beings. Guys that are afraid to be in rooms with girls alone are the ones that are defining how we communicate and connect today. It's just think about that. That was an extra bonus little piece of information I just gave you. But I just want you to understand that we are given, even our ways of being social is derived at how do we present ourselves in a false way to the world. And I just think we have to look at this with our eyes wide open. We need to understand how we are being shaped because it affects our understanding of what it means to function selflessly. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Likewise, you younger, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Chrysotom once said, one of the church fathers, patristic fathers in the second century said, To be another I am, to be another than I am, I must abandon what I am. So look at verses four through five. Here we're given the reason for humility and it's the call to function seamlessly. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So here you see that the usage of the word member has to do with that medical concept of the physical body, that the invisible God is actually seen clearly not by us being no, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. Now, it's true that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Life Together said that there is times where we might lose the, com- the communion of faith. I'm not talking about you being 
unwillingly removed from a church body. That, that can happen. You can move to another place and it takes you a while to find a community of faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis and ultimately hung by them. He lost his fellowship. And he said, it's a sacred thing. It's a gift of grace that should not be neglected. And here we need to understand that to be a member means that we are connected to something bigger than ourselves. We're not saved into a vacuum, but we're saved into a family. And here's where it gets messy and tricky is that you don't get to pick your family. You don't get to pick your family. The greatest people and the worst people I've ever known are Christians. <laughs> you don't get to pick your family. So functioning seamlessly, for we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. I think that this is important is that, it, that we are called together to do something. Literally, function means a thing to be done. It's the Greek word praxis. And it means that we are called together. This is where we have a great dilemma is that the self-centeredness and the individualism of our society has played itself out in how we actually treat church. Because the rise of the megachurch in the 80s was the outcome of the idea that the church is something that is done by the professional in the front. And so we had the rise of cult of personality and the Calvary Chapel movement was, was notorious for, for this. Uh, and I'm grateful to the Calvary movement, just so you know. I got saved into the Calvary movement. But my one critique, not just of Calvary, but of Western Christianity, is that it became about who was the lead guy. And so he's like, you don't, you're not a part of the body of Christ. You're not part of a community. You're just a person that comes to hear Pastor Chuck or Pastor John or Pastor Don or Pastor Ted. And like your connection to the church is that you go and listen to that guy every week. And then what happens when that guy falls? Then you're like, what just happened? I'll never be okay again. It's because you have a a faulty concept of what it means to be a part of the church. And many of you, we were friends. Many of you were friends with me when I worked at a church and someone we loved fell hard. And it destroyed a lot of people's faith because they thought that the church was that person and they didn't recognize their part to play in it. And see here, it says that every person, every member has a particular part to play. And that part is different, but that part is essential and it takes the entire community of faith. And this is why for Door of Hope, we say like we don't even treat people as, uh, I mean, we treat all people with dignity, with respect. We love everyone that comes in, in, but we don't consider someone to be truly committed to the church until they're in a community group. For us, we, we follow the simple formula of Acts. They gathered, week, they gathered daily in the temple and from house to house. And we want people to do more than just come and experience an exciting worship service on Sunday. We want people to know and to be known, to contribute to the community of faith that the name of Jesus would expand in the most unchurched city in the U.S., and it's going to take a lot more than just gathering on Sunday. And so our, for our church, we have over 70% of our church right now in community groups, something like 700, six, six to 700 people in community groups around the city that gather weekly as a way to express its body life each person in the body making a contribution to what we do uh, as, a, as, a, as a community of faith to make the name of Jesus known. But I think this is important because the, the functioning seamlessly is also the way which we discover our uniqueness. Now, this is one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand is that often people have a misunderstanding about, uh, about what it means uh, to be called by God. 
And so nothing creates uh, more frustration in me than when someone comes up to me that just got to the church and they're like, I'm called to preach. And I'm like, really? Well, uh, the only way we'll know if you're called to preach is if someone's called to listen. Has anyone been called to listen? Has anyone acknowledged or actually uh, identified that gift in you? Well, God told me. Oh, really? God told you. Well, I'm positive that God will tell someone else as well. Because this is the same thing that happens in dating. Oh, man, I love young people who spiritualize their relationship. Like some of, like, the Lord told me I'm supposed to marry that girl. I'm like, has he told her? (laughs) No, I'm like, well, until he tells her, you're a stalker. And that's creepy. (laughs) And don't spiritualize stalking. I'll get you in jail, buddy. (laughs) We think that calling is something that happens, like, where, like, light shines down from heaven. We, like... Not many people have had the Saul of Tarsus experience, okay? Most people discover their calling, their gifting in the context of the community of faith that becomes discovered by our surrendering ourselves to others and serving and, and people are like, hey, I'm, I noticed some, something in you. For me, I, and I, I'm always leery, same with like worship, worship leaders. People are like, I'm called to lead worship. I'm like, but you're tone deaf. <laughs> like, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't sing. <laughs> Like, and it goes beyond that. Is there a spiritual gifting involved? It's like we need to understand that we all have a part to play in the body of Christ and calling, actually. Even how we're uniquely gifted is never be discovered if we're not actually living life together intentionally around the person of Jesus. So we have to understand this part. And this is the reason for humility because it takes humility to submit ourselves to one another in love. It takes humility. Humility isn't weakness. Humility is strength under control, actually. It's the recognition that I have Jesus, and the one who has Jesus has everything, and he can use me however he sees fit, which is why Paul goes on to say in verses 6 through 8, which is where we'll end, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding around the gifts of the Spirit. We think of the gift of the Spirit as like this, these different things that the Spirit distributes to people. But we need to understand in 1 Corinthians, when it talks about the gifts of the Spirit and the manifestation of the Spirit, it's actually a, an unfortunate translation in the English because it's actually singular. It is the gift of the Spirit, which means the Spirit himself is the gift. And as we are under his control, as we are filled by him, he then distributes as he sees fit to make the person of Jesus known as we surrender to one another. And so Paul lists off a whole group of names. We're not going to dig into it because this isn't an exhaustive list and it's not the purpose of the, of the message. But the purpose of the message is this, is that there is a calling upon Scripture from the New Testament, from the beginning to its end. What we see is apostolic preaching is Christ's activity within his church. And we have to be committed to the church. Nothing is worse than transfer growth. Churches that are filled with people that are jumping from different church to different church because they're, they're, they like different gifts. And they're like, I, you know, I don't like this church anymore because I don't like the worship. It's too loud. So I'm going to go to another church. And you're like, oh, I love the worship, but I don't like the teacher. Then you go to another. And notice that every time we make those decisions, those shifting, in Portland we have like what we call the roaming 300. 
me and a group of pastors of different churches, we share, they just shift everybody every six months. They get mad at me and they go to Imago Day and then they get mad at Rick McKinley and then they go to Bridgetown and they get mad at John Mark and they come back to me. We actually talked about just starting a church for them and we would just rotate through called the unhappy remnant. And the reason that they rotate through and the reason that they shift, consistently shift, is a lack of stick the desire to be entertained, entertain me without causing me pain. That seems to be the call uh, within modern Christianity. But commitment means that we'll suffer with one another, it means we'll rejoice with one another, it means that we understand that covenant isn't simply for our marriages, but covenant actually has a lot to do with our relationship with God and our relationship as a church community. It means that we stay committed to the church that God has called us so that Jesus' name isn't dragged through the mud, that we don't turn it into a cult of personality or who's the new show in town thing because that's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus has called us together, you reliance, our community of faith, and each one of you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And don't say you have nothing to offer. Don't say, you don't understand my own brokenness. You don't understand, I was born this way because you've been born again. And if you've been born again, you have the creator of the universe making his home within your heart. And he wants to manifest himself powerfully and he does that in the context of community. You won't discover your gifts if you keep yourself pulled away. You won't discover your gifts if you're jumping from church to church. Commit plant yourself, be faithful, grow, develop a spirit of what Eugene Peterson calls stick Give up this need for instantaneous holiness because it doesn't actually exist. Grow slowly, carefully with your eyes fixed upon Christ. For we have the mind of Christ and we are his body. Let's make him seen, amen?